When you stop and think about all that's going on today in the good old USA, you might think that there are only two sides to every story. With over 330 million citizens, there are actually many more sides to our American story. On this program, I provide you with a different point of view. Mine. This is The Truth Hurts, a program where I exercise my First Amendment right to free speech by providing you with information. Hopefully, you will absorb this knowledge, stop, and actually think about the issues, the facts, and the general state of our American story. I'm Steve Z, and this is the Truth Hurts Program. Good morning, seekers of truth, justice, and the American way, before the American way became so evil. It's Steve Z, and today is September 22nd, 2020. This is the morning edition of the Truth Hurts program. We've got some more Joe Biden gaffes, and these are really, really sad, showing ever-declining mental faculties. And we've also got an analysis of the selection process for the replacement member of the U.S. Supreme Court. That and a little bit about masks that will make you chuckle. We'll have that and much more right after this. He's too cheap to hire a real voice talent to perform his breaks. Steve Z, a thrifty guy telling it like it is. Joseph Biden's condition is obviously getting far, far worse as we grow closer to Election Day. Perhaps it's the stress of sitting in his basement all day and not coming out to give public speeches. Because every time he does, he does something stupid like this. I pledge allegiance to the United States of America. One nation. End of his wonder God, for real. I want you to hear that again because it's very important that the President of the United States have the mental faculties to be able to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the United States of America. One nation. End of his wonder God. For real. For real. For real. For real, y'all. For real. I have a five-year-old nephew who can recite the Pledge of Allegiance better than that. Say it again, Joe. I pledge allegiance to the United States of America. One nation. End of his wonder God. For real. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. But that's okay. Someone will probably say this was taken out of context. So let's talk about holding truths to be self-evident. You know, all men created by the... Well, you know. You know the thing. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by... the. Go, you know the you know the thing. And this is the man they want to be your next president. You know. You know the thing. For real. You know the thing. For real. You know the thing. For real. Telling you the truth without all the BS. This is the Truth Hurts program with your host Steve Z. Here's an interesting piece I picked up from the PJ Media website. And no, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not the one saying that this one shouldn't have this office and that one shouldn't have that office because of splitting hairs on 
very minute, minor issues. But this is an interesting piece talking about Kamala Harris's actual eligibility to be the vice president. The article begins, It should be noted at the outset that this is not a conspiracy theory. There's nothing conspiratorial about it. It's actually something that liberals find so distasteful, they rarely engage in it. It's a discussion about the Constitution. What does the Constitution say about the eligibility of Kamala Harris to hold the office of Vice President of the United States? Harris was born in Oakland, California. For many, that would seem to end the discussion right there. She's a, quote, natural-born citizen, unquote, by virtue of her birthplace and the 14th Amendment. And no power on earth says otherwise, right? Not so fast, says Claremont University law professor John Eastman. Tradition and custom may say one thing, but the Constitution actually says another. The language of Article 2 is that one must be a, quote, natural-born citizen, unquote. The original Constitution did not define citizenship, but the 14th Amendment does, and it provides that, quote, all persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens, unquote. Those who claim that birth alone is sufficient to overlook the second phase. The person must also be, quote, subject to the jurisdiction, unquote of the United States, and that meant subject to the complete jurisdiction, not merely a partial jurisdiction, such as which applies to anyone temporarily sojourning in the United States, whether lawfully or unlawfully. Indeed, we may claim that anyone born here is automatically a citizen, regardless of any other circumstances, but as Eastman points out, the Supreme Court has never held that anyone born on U.S. soil no matter the circumstances of the parents, is automatically a U.S. citizen. Kamala Harris's father was Jamaican and her mother was Indian. At the time of Kamala Harris's birth in 1964, neither parent was a lawful permanent resident. Thus, they were not subjected to the complete jurisdiction of the U.S. government, making Harris's eligibility to become vice president an open question. The article continues, it's a legal hair to be sure, and it's a pretty thin one at that, but there is precedent. Granted, our government's view of the Constitution's citizenship mandate has morphed over the decades to what is now an absolute birth on the soil no matter the circumstances view, but that morphing does not appear to have begun until the late 1960s, after Harris's birth in 1964. The children born on U.S. soil to guest workers from Mexico during the roaring 1920s were not viewed as citizens, for example, when, in the wake of the Great Depression, their families were repatriated to Mexico. Nor were children born on U.S. soil to guest workers in farm workers programs of the 1950s and early 1960s, which deemed citizens, when the program ended, and their families be emigrated back to their home countries. Now, no court in the United States would rule on this issue. They can always dodge the question by claiming the plaintiff has no standing. And in this case, tradition and custom, not to mention regular practices, would make the question of Kamala Harris's eligibility an interesting footnote in history, likely nothing more. But even raising this issue will likely brand me, 
the writer, a conspiracy theorist, despite the plain and obvious fact that there is no conspiracy to theorize about. It's buried in the genius that is our Constitution. And if that's a conspiracy theory, you need to blame the founders. Once again, a very interesting piece written by Rick Moran in the PJ Media, August 13, 2020. This is the Truth Hurts program. We'll be right back. Telling you exactly what you need to hear. The Truth. Here's your host, Steve Z. The Democrats are in an uproar. They still are butthurt about a decision that was rendered way back in 2016 when Barack Hussein Obama, a lame duck president with zero possibility of being reelected due to the two-term limit, was asked to make a selection of a Supreme Court nominee. And I want to take this moment in time, this opportunity, to quote Barack Hussein Barry Sotero Obama. He said at that time, quote, The Constitution is pretty clear about what is supposed to happen now. When there is a vacancy on the Supreme Court, the President of the United States is supposed to nominate someone. The Senate is to consider that nomination, and either they disapprove that nominee, or that nominee is elevated to the Supreme Court. Unquote. Those are the words of Barack Hussein Obama. The Republicans at that time said, hey, this isn't right. It's close to the election, and you're a lame duck. And the Senate voted it down. At that time, Barack Obama was a lame duck president. He did make the nomination, just as Trump will make the nomination. The Senate at that time chose to vote it down. They chose to not elevate Obama's choice to the Supreme Court. The Senate now has the right and the authority and the obligation to make a vote. The Senate will have the choice whether to approve Trump's nominee or to vote it down, just as the Senate had that same right when Barack Obama was president. The Democrats are playing politics as usual. The Republicans are seizing on an opportunity to do what is constitutionally allowed, and the Democrats do not like it. Earlier on the program, I quoted Barack Hussein Obama's remarks as they related to the passing of Justice Antonin Scalia during his term. Now I'd like to read for you the Hillary Rotten Clinton statement on the passing of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia back in the day. Quote, my thoughts and prayers are with the family and friends of Justice Scalia as they mourn his sudden passing. I did not hold Justice Scalia's views, but he was a dedicated public servant who brought energy and passion to the bench. The Republicans in the Senate and on the campaign trail who are calling for Justice Scalia's seat to remain vacant dishonor our Constitution. The Senate has a constitutional responsibility here that it cannot abdicate for partisan political reasons. Of course, now the Democrats would love to change their tune, to backpedal, or to walk it back, because now the ball is in Donald Trump and the Republican-led Senate's court. Now, the Republicans have what the Democrats only wished they had had at the passing of Antonin Scalia, 
under the regime of Barack Hussein Obama and gropey Joe Biden. Some programs feed you liberal propaganda. You won't find that here. This is the truth hurts, where we tell it like it is. Now, of course, we have all kinds of commentary from Democrats crying foul because President Trump wants to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court left by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I read something this morning on social media that says, quote, This is what you said. Stand firm in your principles. Show us what you believe in. Show us what you are made of. It quotes Ted Cruz in 2016, who said it's been 80 years since a Supreme Court vacancy was nominated and confirmed in an election year. There's a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year. But there's no law. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said in 2018, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. Marco Rubio said in 2016, I don't think we should be moving on a nominee in the last year of this president's term. I would say that if it was a Republican president. Senator Dave Perdue of Georgia said in 2016, the very balance of our nation's highest court is in serious jeopardy. As a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, I will do everything in my power to encourage the president and Senate leadership not to start this process until we hear from the American people. Chuck Grassley said a lifetime appointment that could dramatically impact individual freedoms and change the direction of the court for at least a generation is too important to get bogged down in politics. The American people should not be denied a voice. Let me stop before I continue. The American people were given a voice when Donald Trump was elected president. A president is elected for a four-year term, not a three-year term. And that is a direct quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg prior to her death. Of course, unless she's speaking from the grave. A president is elected for a four-year term. So are you saying that after the third year of a presidency, a president should not be able to sign a law or make an executive order? Of course not. Are you saying the president loses his rights under the Constitution of freedom of speech, or freedom to bear arms, or any of the other rights that every American is given just because it's year number four of their term? Listen, the Republicans were playing politics in 2016, and now everyone's trying to vilify them for it. The Democrats are playing politics in 2020, and everyone thinks that they should be given their way. Because, as you all know, butthurt Democrats get their way by causing riots and anarchy and threatening violence in the streets. It's their M.O., it's their playbook, and they've been getting away with it for the last seven months without any fear of reprisal or any consequences whatsoever. In 2016, Richard Burr, Republican from North Carolina, said in this election year, the American people will have an opportunity to have their say in the future direction of our country. For this reason, I believe the vacancy left open by the death of Justice Antonin Scalia should not be filled until there is a new president. Sorry, guys, you were wrong then. You were wrong. The president serves for four years. Senator Cory Gardner, Republican from Colorado, said in 2016, I think we're too close to the election. The president who was elected in November should be the one who makes this decision. Sorry, Senator, Republican, you were wrong. 
the president is the president until the last day of his four-year term. Period. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin said in 2016, I strongly agree the American people should decide the future direction of the Supreme Court by their votes for president and the majority party in the U.S. Senate. Unquote. You, Senator Johnson, were incorrect. The president was chosen by the American people three years ago. And the president, who was chosen by the American people three years ago, has the constitutional right, authority, and duty to perform his job as the president of the United States. And one of those duties, responsibilities, and authorities is to select a nominee to replace any Supreme Court justice who causes a vacancy in the nation's highest court. We should not put off Supreme Court decisions for months or even a year or more in some cases because it happens to be the fourth year of a president's four-year term. Mitch McConnell said in March of 2016, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, the vacancy of Antonin Scalia's death should not be filled until we have a new president. Sorry, Mitch, you were wrong then, and the Democrats are wrong now to quote you on it. To offer a little different view on how this process should be carried out, need I remind you, there have been 10 times in an election year when the President and Senate are in power. The Supreme Court vacancy was indeed filled. The reason it didn't happen in 2016 is because the voters gave the Senate back to the Republicans because of Obama and Biden and eventually gave up the presidency to Donald Trump. The only persons to blame for the situation they find themselves in now are the Democrats. They asked Harry Reid not to get rid of the filibuster when the Democrats threw a temper tantrum because one day they would not be in power and it would come back to bite them on the proverbial butt. Well, the Democrats threw their tantrum, and now karma has bitten them. Elections have consequences. This is the Truth Hurts program. And yes, you can mark it down in the history books. I said that Republicans said things in error in 2016. We'll be right back. This program is protected free speech under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We apologize if you are offended, but we retract nothing. This is the Truth Hurts program. The dumbest woman in America, Alexandria Ocasio Horseface Cortez, was speaking about Mitch McConnell, and she says, quote, This is a man who does not care about a dying woman's final wish. Unquote. She's probably right. Who gives a damn about a dying woman's wish? It's not his job to give a damn about a dying woman's wish. What about a dying woman who wishes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would step down tomorrow? What about a dying woman's wish that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez decide to become a Republican or abandon her philosophies? It's not Mitch McConnell's job to give a damn about a dying woman's wish, number one. We confirm justices to interpret the Constitution, not to dictate through dying wishes who their successors should or should not be, 
or when they should or should not be nominated. There is a legal process, Ms. Cortez. Perhaps you'd be better off bartending instead of trying to make laws in a land where you are very much outclassed and outgunned. But to your point, I sincerely doubt that Ruth Bader Ginsburg made any such deathbed wish. Second, her wish would have no bearing on the appointment of her successor. She was appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States for a life term, and her life, as her term, is now over. The seat is not hers as she no longer occupies it, just as it did not belong to the justices who occupied it before her. Another point is that Trump and a Republican-led Senate were elected by the American people because they wanted any Supreme Court vacancies to be filled by conservative, originalist candidates. It is one of the reasons that people voted for Donald Trump back in 2016. Remember, remember, the president made no secrets about his intentions in this regard. He released a list of his choices way back in 2016. He has proven to have been truthful about it, as he has already chosen two candidates from his original list of appointment candidates. Obama nominated Merrick Garland in 2016. The Republican-led Senate chose not to vote on Garland, as he was not a conservative, and that is what their constituents wanted. If the Democrats had had control of the Senate in 2016, I'm most certain that Garland would be sitting on the bench today. And although I never did agree with much of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's politics, or even many of her decisions regarding certain political issues, I did at least have a level of respect for her as a Supreme Court Justice. That respect level will likely drop if it is true that she specifically stated she wants the new president to name her successor. All this for politics. She was an associate justice, but she behaved like a low-level politician. One could expect such low-level behavior on the part of politicians, but not justices. Shame on the Democrats who turned her death into a farce. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have retired under Obama if she really cared about her replacement. At that time, she could have stepped down due to health reasons. After all, she had cancer more than one time. Obama could have chosen her successor then, but she was about the RGB show and not about the future. Warning, the truth hurts with Steve Z can be addictive. Tell your friends. A fifth grade student was told he could no longer wear his Hooters face mask in class because it violates the student code of conduct. Ian Golba, age 11, had been wearing the mask from Hooters restaurants to class, something he said he's been doing since school started at Sunset Park Elementary School in August. Earlier this week, however, the principal told him it was inappropriate because it expresses a woman's body, Ian Golba explained. The boy's father, Steve, disagrees. He says he's not thought that there is anything wrong with this mask nor does he think there's anything wrong with the restaurant. So Steve Golba called the school's principal. The principal says it was deemed offensive. 
I told him we go there as a family. We eat wings. We watch sports. I said we have chocolate cake. We go there all the time and it's not an offensive mask, the father said, thinking that perhaps the school administrator would change his mind. Ian Golba said he was told to take the mask off during gym class. I believe it was a counselor that came and she told me to take it off and that it was inappropriate, so I needed to take it off. I asked her if I was allowed to wear it inside out and she said yes, I could wear it inside out, so I wore it like that the rest of gym class, Ian said. His father, Steve Golba, said his son is upset by all the attention that this drew from school administrators. He was afraid he was going to get reprimanded, in trouble, and perhaps suspended from school. I never viewed it as anything but a restaurant. Do we feel women's bodies are offensive? I don't know. I don't. The principal told me that it was inappropriate. I said, I don't understand why it's inappropriate. There's nothing wrong with that mask. He said he plans to take his son back to Hooters. Good for you, Dad. We do like the chicken wings. They have the best chicken wings, the father said. A school district spokesman, of course, said they could not comment on this specific case, but said that masks fall under the student code of conduct in the dress code section of their student handbook. If it's any consolation, the attention that this has garnered for little Ian Golba has now prompted Hooters to offer free chicken wings to the young man. On Hooters' official Twitter page, there's a post of little Ian wearing his Hooters mask. And the Hooters tweet says, Hey Ian, what happened is pretty lame, but you're not, and neither are free wings. Let's show your school there's nothing to be ashamed about. How does free wings for every student and faculty member sound? Ian's father previously expressed he will continue to take his son to Hooters, but I would imagine that the school administrators will frown upon Hooters arriving with free wings for everyone, including the students and the staff and the administrators. Hey, Ian, say when and where. And Steve Z will join you at Hooters. And I'll even buy my own wings. But it's okay for students to see BLM flags and rainbow flags for the LGBTQRSTUVW whatever community in the classrooms. And if that happens to be offensive to you or to me, it's tough nuggets, right? The double standard is indeed alive and well or unwell, depending on your point of view. This is the Truth Hurts program. We'll be right back. Steve Z is saying what you know you are thinking, only with a really cool DJ voice. The Truth Hurts. When Democrats can't get their way, They use every trick in the book to skirt the law and sometimes even rewrite the law to support their own sick desires. The question of court packing has reared its ugly head again after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the possibility that Donald Trump will be able to appoint yet another conservative justice to the highest court in the land. 
Expanding the Supreme Court to more than nine seats sounds like a radical idea. The term for it, court packing, sounds derisive because it has created controversy each and every time it has ever come up in history. But it has been attempted and done in American history before. Now the idea is back in the political mainstream as some butthurt Democrats, frustrated by the Supreme Court that could get even more conservative in the coming months, and push presidential nominee Joe Biden to consider it if he wins the White House and Democrats take back the Senate majority. Biden seems reluctant. He hasn't acknowledged Democrat calls to do this since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. But there is a world in which he may warm up to it and attempt to push it through in the form of legislation. So here's what it is. Court packing is adding more judges to a court than there are now something that can easily be done on the federal level by passing a new law. Now this would take House approval, Senate approval, and a signature by a president. The Constitution says nothing about how many justices there must be on the Supreme Court, and over time the number has fluctuated. The court started out with six justices and then expanded to seven, and at one point was even as high as ten. Congress sets the Supreme Court now to be nine justices, and it's been that way since 1869. But if a president and Congress agree, they could change the law to either expand the court or to shrink it. Doing so would change the political makeup of the court and influence all of its decisions. Congress and the president might decide that the court majority is too far out of line with their understanding of the Constitution and that the law or public opinion are also differed, and then they could add seats and fill the court with justices that think more like them in the hopes of rebalancing the scales. Since justices effectively can't be fired except by impeachment, the idea of court packing is to simply dilute their vote. In 1863, the Republican Congress expanded the court to 10 justices so that Abraham Lincoln could get an extra appointment. A few years later, Congress reduced it to seven judges to prevent Andrew Johnson from making any appointments. And then it grew to 1869 under Ulysses S. Grant, and it's stayed there at nine ever since. Other presidents have tried to change it. Franklin Roosevelt tried in 1930s to get Congress to expand the court because he was frustrated by how it was knocking down pieces of his popular New Deal legislation. Sound familiar, Alexandria Horseface Cortez? He put out a judicial overhaul plan that would allow him to appoint a new judge in all federal courts for every judge over the age of 70. It was an aim to appoint judges for the five or six who were over the age of 70 on the Supreme Court so things would swing Roosevelt's way. His idea did hit a wall in Congress, but in a roundabout way, he got what he wanted. The court saw its majority imperiled, and two justices began switching their votes to support New Deal legislation. They switched their approach to New Deal legislation, and that saved the idea of nine justices. So why now are Democrats talking about court packing? They're frustrated about how the past two justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, have gotten on the court under extremely politically divisive circumstances nominated by a president that they don't like. A president who allegedly lost the popular vote and was approved by a bare majority of a Senate that because of where people live, as they claim, no longer represents a majority of the population. Bullshit. 
Nothing is off the table, chuckles Schumer, told fellow Democrats in a widely reported private conference call over the weekend. He didn't specifically mention court packing, but it was interpreted as a nod to at least consider the idea, since he didn't rule it out. Expanding the court gained some traction during this year's Democrat primary. As many as 11 candidates were at least open to the idea, according to a Washington Post tally. It's not about expansion, it's about depoliticizing the Supreme Court, said Focahontas herself, Elizabeth Warren. It's a conversion that's worth having, she said. Mayor Pete Booty Gag said we need to reform the Supreme Court in a way that will strengthen its independence and restore American people's trust in it as a check to the presidency and the Congress. What he really meant was, oh, Trump won and we don't like Trump, and Trump's appointing justices, which is his constitutional right to do, and we don't like it, so now we're going to stick a bunch of weirdos and liberals on the court so we can go against the president. Biden has not been a fan of the idea. He has seen it as a maneuver that could come back to haunt Democrats when they're out of power. It's probably the wisest thing Biden has ever said. What's to stop a Republican president and a Republican Congress from expanding it even more to get what they want when they return to power? We live to rue that day, Biden said during the primaries. Plus, Biden served in the Senate for more than 30 years and has a reputation, supposedly, for respecting institutions and the way they're done. After all, he still thinks it's 1920. Yes, Biden is unlikely a candidate to expand the court. But he won't be there long. And Kamala Harris is certainly for the idea. So let's say Democrats are all in a position to seriously consider court packing. Let's say they win the presidency. Let's say they keep the House of Representatives. And let's say they win a majority in the Senate, meaning they control all of the Congress and the White House. Now let's consider there's a pandemic and calls for action on racial justice. Moving to expand the Supreme Court doesn't seem like the first to-do item on their list. But what if Democrats start passing Biden's agenda and inevitable challenges by Republicans make their way to a conservative Supreme Court, which will certainly stop some of that legislation? That could be a world in which Biden, or Harris, frustrated by a court just as Roosevelt was, starts thinking differently about the court's makeup. Biden would need majority votes in the House of Representatives and in the Senate to approve expanding the court, just like any other piece of legislation. Though Senate Republicans could try to filibuster it, if the law passed, he and the Democrat Senate could add justices with a simple majority vote. There's also a world in which even just talking about changing the court actually changes how partisan the court is, like what happened under Roosevelt. Hacking the court has ramifications for the justices just as much as for the politicians who do it. It could be a severe blow to the legitimacy of the Supreme Court if people look at it and say, this is a compromised court. These judges were appointed by a minority president. And not in the black and white sense of the word minority, but minority in party affiliation. So as I said at the beginning of this segment, the Democrats want to have their way and they want to use every means at their disposal to get their way, even if it means changing a tradition of nine justices which has stood since 1869. 
That's going to do it for this morning edition of the Truth Hurts program. I hope you were enlightened, educated, and informed. And we'll do it again a little later. So go out there and make it a great day. And remember, sometimes the truth hurts. You have been listening to the Truth Hurts program with your host, Steve Z. Thank you for listening. We hope that this presentation has enlightened you to the things that may have been hidden from you. This is where we bring darkness to light, turn fiction into reality, and exercise our First Amendment right to free speech. Here is where the double standard is exposed and displayed for all to see. We sincerely hope that we've helped you to open your eyes to what's going on in the real world. The Truth Hurts program is produced at Studio 63 in Bayou Country in affiliation with Steve Knight Productions. Background music by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. No animals were harmed in the making of this program. It is fact. It is real. It is truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Hurts.